Greetings, and welcome to Praise. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the first half of Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. So this book is, there's a lot to discuss, and that's why we wanted to cut it into two sections. It's been a while that we've been planning to do this, and you know, life comes at you fast. So here we are now, uh, and we're going to discuss another part of just doing the first half is Paul and I, and you know, Paul can speak for himself, but have an issue with some of the things, uh, some of the framing that Yuval Noah Harari does in this book. And it seems to come from a mindset of a biological atheist. And I wouldn't consider myself deeply religious, but the values and the way he frames the narrative seems to be odd. It just, it doesn't, flow with the way I I value things. And uh, so we're just going to, we're going to kind of take a look at some of the different topics discussed. Paul, what are your perspectives so far in the first half of the book? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said there on the framing of, of his mindset when writing this appeared to be one that's very pessimistic about the role of humankind, not just in history, but in the world today. i admit that it was a really interesting read at different times, learning about some of basically social biology's view of how we got to where we got today uh, around evolution. Uh, There were things that I didn't know, like temples built 12 and a half thousand years ago that people can't really explain what was that cultural significance because we don't have any sort of record from that time. The longest, the the old, excuse me, written record is about five and a half thousand years ago, according to him. Uh, so when there are structures and places that people clearly gathered from that time frame, it kind of throws biology into a frenzy trying to figure out what it is and they don't really answer. So there are certain elements of the book so far that we've read that is really quite interesting but i agree with you it's hard to keep that interest and uh, excitement to learn more when woven throughout basically every section is an attempt to get you to agree with the premise that all of society is fake and unnecessary from a biological perspective and that humans throughout history and even today uh, are bought into lies that aren't necessary to exist. Um, so he tries to get you to immediately accept the premise that there absolutely is no God. There really is no truth uh, outside of biology. So if it can't be biologically proven, it is assumed to be untrue and just a lie that we've all accepted. And that for me, I think is is the hardest part about trying to read this book and and get something out of it is that I just the whole time my inside is screaming I don't agree with that you know yeah and and that brings up a good point I truly think it's important to read things that may conflict with our own values in order to you know better understand uh you know walk a mile in someone else's shoes I I would agree with what you have to say about you know a, a lot of it is is pushing a narrative that I don't necessarily agree with it seems to be part of this narrative that all humans are bad, that we're the problem with the world, and that going back to a time when you were having to you know, fight every night from creatures and animals uh, is the ideal way to live. But in, uh, 
enough about that per se. One positive I will say is, uh, you know, early human history. I felt like I learned a lot about the fact that there were there were more than one human species, uh, right? So that's why the book is called Sapiens, uh, that we are Homo sapiens. Uh, there were other, in a sense, cousins to us as we know them. Neanderthals, Denisovans, and other, you know, two-legged creatures. Was that new information to you or had you thought about this prior to reading the book? No, I had known that. I mean, I hadn't exactly thought about it in the way that I thought about it while reading the book, but I knew that Neanderthals existed as a distinct cousin of the type of human that we are today throughout biological history. I think I knew that there were other species that had died out earlier than Neanderthals. And I mean, part of what was interesting about him is he, uh, the, the author here, is that he, he doesn't necessarily have all of the answers on what happened with that or what the consensus is biologically right now uh, among experts on, say, either one of those species, the Denisovans, did they um, get replaced or did they you know interbreed and, and become basically um, a part of our line as well? There, there isn't necessarily an answer. So he kind of ex explores m both of the options or, or a, a multitude of options when biology doesn't doesn't point to anything. Uh, but just to, to give a little bit perspective on what I was talking about earlier as well, not to bring it back up immediately, but the chapter titles for part one, I think, show you a little bit of his mindset off off the bat. So, again, this is about human history, a, a brief history of humankind. So part one is the cognitive revolution, and the chapter titles go, An Animal of No Significance, The Tree of Knowledge, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve, The Flood. So he starts out by letting us know that we aren't anything special at all. There were a couple of turns of fate that meant we are who we are today in terms of world dominance, one of which he kind of glosses over, which I find hilarious, which is that all of a sudden humans' brains began evolving quite rapidly and growing. And he even admits, he's like, we, we can't really tell why. It was a matter of pure chance as far as we can tell. And doesn't try to explore that idea any further. He just accepts that right away. Well, pure chance. And, and I find that to be to be quite interesting. But yes, the in terms of kind of the the early history part of what he talks about, I think there's there's a lot of uh, good stuff, uh, or at least interesting, you know, talking points. Uh, what was what were some of your favorites? Uh, well, going back a little bit to those uh, the two different theories. Uh, one is that you know, Homo sapiens uh, genocided the rest of the uh, human species. And the other one is uh, that we, you know, bred together. But I think uh, for reasons now, uh, there is some concern uh, with believing the second one, uh, that there were, you know, some humans that, you know, full Homo sapien, uh, and then some that are, you know, part Neanderthal or part Denisovan. And it's interesting, he goes into the ideas that that could have long-ranging impacts if it was proved to be true uh, in our time now. Do different races of humans, do they actually have different differences in DNA? And the concern 
you know, for that is do we start treating people differently because of that? And us knowing history, there's been other things that we've treated people differently for, uh, whether that be race or gender or ethnicity, I guess. Uh, and, and to put that into a DNA backed perspective, he believes that that would cause would cause issues. I thought that was an interesting point, but I think the, you know, the other theory that we killed all the other types of humans is also a sort of tragic theory. I agree with you. Um, it also, not to completely derail the conversation entirely, <laughs> but reminds me of one of my favorite Norm MacDonald moments on TV. Um, and since we recently did our comedy episode, I'm just going to bring it up. Norm was playing poker with some people, including a, a fairly ditzy blonde, and one of his buddies... They were talking about different races for whatever reasons. And one of them was, well, you know what the that's terrible because of what we did to the Indians. And one of the guy goes, oh, no, that was justified. That was for land. Um, and there's a little bit more conversation. And then this girl whose nickname is genocide for whatever reason goes, oh, it was a it was a justifiable genocide. And everybody just starts like laughing hysterically when Norm goes, what, you've never heard the legal term justifiable genocide? <laughs> yeah, so that that was what I was thinking that whole time as you were talking about the <laughs> genociding other races, because it's like, yeah, we uh, we wanted to take over the world. What do you expect? It was justified. I'm just kidding, everyone. Um, <laughs> first of all, I don't know what the long-ranging implications would be if we found it out. What exactly does that change? Okay, so we're a little bit of mutts from different types of sapiens, right? Well, I think the concern is that if a certain race is, you know, has a different common ancestor, that maybe that gives credence to certain claims uh, made in the past uh, that, you know, some people have bigger brains uh, or are smarter. And I think that's maybe the concern. Ah, okay. So the racists would be proven right? In a sense, it might give credence to that. Um, so I think that's the concern there. Um, when, again, I think if you frame it differently, people have differences, right? And I think that would be, I don't think that's something to look down upon, right? I think an important part of any species continuing to remain is is having differences uh, so that people can uh, be prepared for different circumstances. You know, if if some people are better at swimming and we do have some sort of flood, then humanity would would probably only survive because of that. Or, you know, people that have mutations uh, that can deal with radiation in the event of a nuclear war or something like that. So again, I think it's in a way you frame it, right? You can look at these differences as uh, ways to prop up racist groups, or you can look at them as, as positives, uh, as better for our species. Well, in a um, related, I can actually get a, a not terrible transition here to to the next topic. He talks quite a bit about the idea of myths uh, as being a new idea that allowed us to grow and cooperate in bigger networks. And that's basically why we've taken over the world. And again, as I said, he kind of establishes that, well, um, all, all different faith traditions are these myths. Uh, and I don't really have a disagreement with that. But 
his conjecture is that all of these myths are innately false. And that's where I have the disagreements. Uh, but I do find it quite interesting as well how he he takes time to focus on quite different cultures at different times and tries to basically justify why what we do today is basically just as good as what they did then. Like they had different reasons for why they did what they did, but like they, they weren't worse than us for doing it. And, and that also was something that was rubbing me the wrong way and talking about well, he, he compares like, you know, Western culture to the hunter gather people of South America, which included a culture where they would kill children, they would kill sick people, they were, would kill elderly, anyone that was slowing down the tribe in a way that they didn't want. And so he's making that justification and saying they viewed those things as many today view abortion and euthanasia. And I found that really funny because it's like, yeah, and the people that have objections to those things today are the ones that would objectively say that those people lived inferior cultural lives to us today because we have an idea of the innate value of a human life. But it's clear that that isn't a priority for him. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, I think there's, you know, whether whether these myths are factual or not um in the biological atheist mindset it seems like none of it's real i think that just leads towards nihilism too that nothing really matters which is in a sense kind of weird right my guess would be that the author he probably at least believes that you know life should continue i don't know that for sure maybe not. that's the crazy thing yeah when you talk about humanity as a life form it's clear that the, he thinks that we've grown too big for our britches and at the very best should probably scale down our total footprint on Earth back to something like 250 million rather than the going on 8 billion that we've got. So I don't know, you know, like I, I think that his viewpoint is that we're slowly but surely destroying the Earth and, you know, might be the end of all life forms. And if human life is, as he puts in the first chapter, an animal of no significance, then why why is it worth it for us to have a little bit of extra population growth now if we're going to f definitely bring the end of all life on Earth? Yeah, he, he starts to get into that in the, uh, the second part, the agricultural revolution, uh, that overall starting to farm uh, is bad. Uh, and cause disease to be in certain areas uh, of higher population uh, and how that's a problem. And I feel like the an argument against against that, and you know maybe we haven't come to it in the third and fourth parts of the book, but we've become an overall more tolerant society and a more positive society, right? There isn't there aren't murders going on, you know, all around us, at least, you know, how we're privileged to be in the United States. I think, you know, like when it comes to hunter gatherers, there's this in a in a sense, right? This myth that he is promoting that that was when people were happiest and kindest and I I think there's maybe some merit to that that living a life that's not materialistic uh can be a positive. But the thing is life for them, you know, was involved murder and death and, you know, 90% child's child death and et cetera. Right. And so I think 
although there may have been lapses of of humankind that uh, were probably worse off, uh, maybe from the hunter gatherer, uh, I think today, in today's time, we've become a better society, uh, having gone through that. Yeah. One of the quotes from that section is he's talking about that change, right? Going from the hunter-gatherer to farming and living more in a city-state type, having permanent roots and population kind of exploding. And he said, the pursuit of an easier life resulted in much hardship, not for the last time. It happens to us today. And then goes on to talk about, oh, how many young college kids have taken high-powered jobs and blah, blah, blah. He is quite clearly taking kind of the Marxist view that we reached the end of history when we created the workers of the world. So before there were workers to work a field, that's the part of history that was good. Because at that time, everybody was equal. Everybody was just trying to get enough berries and, you know, maybe get a deer so that you could get some meat. Uh, and that was your entire priority. Everything that you needed to do to survive, you had to do to survive. No, there wasn't specialization at that time. Uh, everyone had about the same skills and had a better understanding of their environment compared to, you know, now we're talking about the agricultural revolution. There was a new subsection of specialized morons because they had <laughs> the ability to, you know, do one thing well enough to get paid and to eat. But that was the only thing they were able to do. And and I like I, I have a little bit of sympathy for that mindset when you look at people today and a little bit is is engineered on none of our stuff is made so that we can fix it. But I feel like a lot of my generation doesn't know how to fix things. And I, I put myself in that group as well. I would um, agree. And that that is like I can I can understand it from there. But when you just say the pursuit of an easier life resulted in hardship and and frame it as a bad thing you're making the same claim about oh if only you know inequality were taken away then everybody would be happy when it's like okay when you try to eliminate inequality all you get is everyone having zero that is the only way you can eliminate inequality and it actually just stratifies it because there's always going to be that very small group that does not have zero and they're going to have everything. But that that is just one example of kind of the frustration um, at how he's looking at that mindset in the move from hunter gatherer to farming. What, what I find a bit interesting is and maybe he says it in the book, I, I can't recall exactly. But I would think in his perspective, looking at it biologically, it seems like farmers won out. There are more people living in an industrial farming setting uh, than there are hunter and gatherers, right? So from a biological perspective, this is overall good for the human population, right? It's created more people and more genetic variants than there would be had we all stayed hunter-gatherers. So, and hilariously, this is where he takes the non-biological approach, because from what you just said, that's absolutely true. There is no doubt that biological uh, success that can be attributed to the agricultural community over hunter-gatherers. But what he's saying is that put 99% of humanity into the oppressed group. 
So now he take he steps back and and doesn't take a biological look, but takes a societal look and says, "Oh yeah, this had biological positives, but look at all the oppression it created." And and he says, um, uh, "It's no accident that kings and prophets had styled themselves as shepherds and likened the way they and the gods cared for the people to a shepherd's care for his flock." Yet from the, st- the viewpoint of the herd rather than that of the shepherd, it's hard to avoid the impression that for the vast majority of domesticated animals, the o- agricultural revolution was a terrible catastrophe. Their evolutionary success is meaningless, you know, and then and talks <laughs> about how all of those animals, you know, were driven to all, near extinction in the wild. And even though the cows had access to survival and reproduction and theoretically genetic variation because of farming, Oh, look at how oppressed they are. And again, when you compare kings and prophets to that system, you're saying everyone that they quote unquote are caring for, they're actually oppressed. And even though, you know, they might be flourishing genetically, they don't know it. And and it's just because their lives are miserable that, you know, we should say this is a bad system. It sounds like he's making an argument that oppression is good for genetic variation. Almost. It's more like he's making the excuse that genetic variation is bad because of the oppression that it took to get there. It seems a very antithetical view to biology, though. Yes. If, If creatures are meant to reproduce and continue living and continue to change and adapt to environments and and such it seems like us humans aren't such a animal of insignificance right wheat and corn and grass the things that we decided you know either sustain us or we like having in our lawns for whatever reason those plants have basically taken over the world because of us that is evolutionary success but he would say oh they've been destroyed in their inability to successfully change because now they're fully dependent on us so there's no ability to to mutate but yeah i mean it's interesting to watch his perspective change when the results aren't exactly aligned with what he would hope right it's uh it's definitely interesting in talking about the myths the other thing that i kind of wanted to touch on was his comparison uh of the idea of a societal myth from three and a half thousand years ago that we have records of compared to two and a half hundred years ago. Um, And how he says nothing has basically actually changed throughout that time. Uh, It's just the setup of the myth happened to be different in those two different places. And that has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that we're living by the Christian myth. Now there's no difference in truth between them. It's just, you know, a different time in the in the code of Hammurabi, you know, that was the king's rule and he established it and stratified the populace into, you know, three different sections, including basically the uh, elites, the normals and the oppressed. And, you know, when the Declaration of Independence declared that all men are created equal, you know, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that just happens to be the code that we decided to put together. No significant change to the code of Hammurabi, except for the fact that we're Christian. And 
he tries to re-encode that phrase in a way that works biologically and in doing so butchers it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, just to read a section because I think it's it's important. Um, he says, the two texts presenteth with, present us with an obvious dilemma. Both the Code of Hammurabi and the American Declaration of Independence claim to outline universal and eternal principles of justice, but according to the Americans, all people are created equal, whereas according to the Babylonians, people are decidedly unequal. The Americans would, of course, say that they are right and, the, and that Hammurabi is wrong. wrong. Hammurabi, naturally, would retort that he is right and that the Americans are wrong. In fact, they are both wrong. So he makes the explicit claim that that this one that we currently are living in, in the most prosperous society ever created, is factually wrong. And then he goes on to translate biologically. So he says, according to the science of biology, people were not created. They have evolved. And what about happiness so far? Biological research has failed to come up with a clear definition of happiness or a way to measure it objectively. Most biological studies acknowledge only the existence of pleasure, which is more easily defined and measured. So life, liberties, and, and the pursuit of happiness should be translated into life and the pursuit of pleasure. So here's a interesting topic that we can probably discuss for a little bit relating exactly to that. When we're thinking about goals and what's better for society uh, like you mentioned we live in the most prosperous time uh, where there's the most wealth longest life expectancy least murder and rape and so to me even if something is quote-unquote false does it lead to a better end to believe that people are different and have mutable characteristics or to believe in the myth that everybody has a chance, that everybody is created equal. I think if you look at it in that view, right, like maybe it's not biologically accurate, but if you believe that everybody is created equal, right, I think that creates a more prosperous and positive society. Uh, then, you know, if people, if everybody believed that all people are created equal, right, even if this is just a myth, do you think we'd have a better society or a worse society? It kind of gets down to the question of what is true. I think that Jordan Peterson has talked about this in, in a way that uh, I would never be able to in, in an accuracy and a precision. But is what is biologically defined the only thing that's true? Or is what is experienced also true? Can I have a true statement about my experience in the world? If I can then it's undoubted that the mindset or the belief system that creates the better outcomes is the belief that human life is inherently valuable and each person has a specific and unique role to play on earth. He clearly doesn't have that mindset and he thinks that the people that do are no better than anyone else. And that is where I end up getting frustrated. And he's explaining that very clearly. He's saying, if you believe this, he's not saying there's anything inherently wrong with believing it, but you are, in fact, believing a lie. And I say there's there's nothing more true than 
the truth of our experience when enacting a lifestyle or belief system in the world. And so when I do that fully, that is when my life is the most fulfilled. So if that's true, that's the truest thing that I can do in my life. And if that's not true, then that is not going to be a truth that I can live out. Um, so that's that's kind of what I think about that. Do you agree? To an extent, kind of the way I look at it, right? If if you want to live by the Hammurabi code, right? What is that end result in, right? I think it ends in more intolerance, uh, more uh, inequality, or do you want to... So essentially what I'm saying is let's take the premise that both of these are false. What leads to a better society? Right. The belief that people so it, are is maximizing tolerance and maximizing equality the the best version of society. Um, again, I think that also depends on your beliefs, which, according to Harari, are all false. There is no such thing as a belief. Right. And there, there's no such thing as a true belief, a true belief. Right. You know, the way that it seems to be framed to me is that at least in this book, that humans are bad. And I think this only just takes you to nihilism uh, where there's more bad consequences to that than there are if you believe that life matters, you know, that people should be treated equally. I don't know. It's it, it's an interesting topic and I think goes down to the core beliefs that we have. But again, it's it, it's hard to do when you're looking at it from a biological perspective. So I know what nihilism is, but I know some people that at least recently didn't. And I don't know if they're listening or not, but can you explain why that mindset, why the end result of uh, living with that belief system that he's outlining there uh, ends with nihilism? So to me, if if you don't have a belief that there can be something better or that things matter, if nothing matters, then there's no reason not to do heinous acts or not to do not to get rid of yourself. Nihilism to me is kind of believing that there is no free will, none of this matters, we're all just molecules. So if you don't believe that anything matters, uh, I think that's overall a worse product of society. I don't know if that exactly answers your question or or the explanation you wanted me to give, but well, if you believe that none of this matters, quote unquote, when you talk about human civilization or human life, wouldn't it lead more to hedonism? Wouldn't it just say, okay, I'm here only to pursue the maximum pleasure that I can achieve in my life? Why nihilism? Again, I think this maybe goes down to, to core values, but if you're trying to put your life in terms of maximizing the world around you, right? You're going to take into account other people's thoughts, opinions, beliefs, ideas, their happiness, their sadness. You're going to, and to me, that that's kind of what believing in, in something that matters, you know, whether that be society or, I mean, even, even like a, a job, a corporation. Uh, if you don't care about the consequences of failing at a job, right, then 
why why work hard why strive to do anything positive you know and, and then where hedonism is i think is you're trying to maximize just for the self and as talked about in the book right the reason humans dominated was because we have beliefs amongst one another we can believe in things that are impossible to see and that connects people and by connecting, by cooperating, you know, the most important part of this planet, in a sense. I don't know. At this point, I might just sound like I'm spouting a bunch of gibberish, but what are your uh, thoughts? No, you said the thing that set us apart was the ability for us to believe in things that are impossible to see or something like that. Correct. And I think that that is... The biggest takeaway to me is I wish that Harari had approached this with a an openness to the possibility that something that is impossible to see is still real because he doesn't. He he approaches it as if it would be an absolutely uh, ridiculous thing to believe in the concept of love because you can't see love. The only thing that he would believe is instinct exists and that love is simply instinct. I don't believe that. In my human experience, I have seen love in an above and beyond format of what instinct would dictate. And I've, there are other things that are impossible to see that I've experienced in my life. So a little bit, I have some compassion and, and sadness for this human being that this is the mindset that throughout life, he, you know, clearly he's a very educated person. Clearly he's a very researched person, but clearly he's lived a life that has left him very jaded. And that's the only way that you can really take that mindset and live it out. In my opinion, um, is to have missed on a lot of things that, you know, a lot of people got the chance to enjoy in their lives. And, and that is, kind of the the biggest thing for me like you know we could talk about how he talks about races and the american slave trade as an institution and he talks about gender and sex as distinct and you know questions whether they're actually biologically driven or not and do these things that doesn't sound like it makes any sense when you think about what a biological purist would probably think but I think the reality is that he's just, you know, the, the perspective that he brought in writing this book was was that of someone that had already figured everything out and was aligning the framing of the book with the political ideology that he has subscribed through because of this atheistic biological purist view of the world. You know what I mean? I think so. And and that's why, you know, as we were talking about earlier, when it came to, you know, looking at the biological success of wheat, rice, grain, humans that farmed, uh, he set that aside, right? So why would you set that aside if you're looking at it at a purely biological thought process? And there's other parts, right? Like we talked about, it seems like he very much pushes down on Christianity, you know, doesn't really mention... Uh, the Muslim religion as being a as a myth. He broadly says that all religions are, but you can see there's a a through line that in essence shows what his values are or lack thereof, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And right, 
I think in writing this book, he had a bone to pick with Christianity's influence on the world. And so I think one of his, you know, intended or unintended, one of the goals of the book for him was to plant a seed in everyone's mind that whatever preconceived notions that exist within them that align with Christianity are false and were indoctrinated into them. Do you see why I would think that? Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. You know, we were chatting a little bit beforehand and it's like there are things that I wish I could just bring up and talk to him about because in the Christian world, there are plenty of things that scientific evidence has has been collected for that can't be proven through the biological understandings we have today. So his whole premise that the world can be explained using a purely biological viewpoint, you know, I, I can throw in the shredder immediately, you know, so what that does to his point of view and what that does to his um, ideas about how we should interact in the world. It's like, how do you defend that anymore? Because clearly that can't sustain any sort of criticism. I think uh, probably my biggest gripe with, with the book is that if you are to take all of this and believe it wholeheartedly, right? You're going to think that humans are insignificant, that, you know, women have always been oppressed, that other races have always been oppressed, that, you know, some people are better than others, and that humans as a whole are, you know, not good for the world, right? So if everybody took in these beliefs, I think society would go to hell in a handbasket. But hell doesn't exist. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I, I get you. So so that's the, that's the problem I have, right? It, when, when you frame all of this in this nihilistic perspective, I don't think that creates more good than if you framed it in a, you know, listen, there have been bad parts of history. There has been oppression. But the thing is, over time, it's gotten better, right? By By almost all ways of measure, Things are better now than they were in the past. I think taking these ideas and beliefs and framing would just lead to a overall worse society. Right. And and that's another question I would ask. <clears throat> if these just are myths that are created by humans and that have no no core in reality in any sense of the word, why have things gotten better? Is there something innately about humans that mean we get better over time why was the pace so slow pre 2000 years ago what changed why why did the pace slow down at different times throughout history and you know i would make the argument that the adoption of christian morality as the standard in the west has made the west the best place in the world um i don't think i don't believe in multiculturalism in that i don't believe that all cultures are equal I will do everything in my power to ensure me and everyone that I love do not live in a culture like the Chinese culture right now. I have no interest in in living under a totalitarian state, living under state control, any state that isn't just throwing shade at the Chinese here. And part of that is because they have done everything they can to eradicate belief systems as anyone any state that tries to completely control their populace does i think it's gotten better because we have embodied a lot of those virtues that 
Christianity upholds. And I think our society gets worse when we abandon those virtues. And we, I, I think you can see that visible in the world today. So, so that's a, a little bit my perspective is, is like, yeah, what creates more good? That's what we should pursue. I agree with you completely on that. And then I think we have to take the, because again, that's a little bit why I asked you the question. You say it's gotten better. When you define better, do you only mean greater equality and more tolerance? Because I think a lot of people do view that as better, but when they see equality, they don't think equality of opportunity or equality of existence in any way other than having the same outcomes in terms of how you get to live your life. It's like a a materialistic equity is what a lot of people actually mean when they say equality. So you know, define your terms. And if you can tell me why it's gotten better, then I think, you know, maybe we could get somewhere in terms of what society should be framed around. Right. So I I think in general, uh, life expectancy has gone up, right? I I think life is a gift and, and therefore the longer people have to enjoy it is a positive, is a better. I think that in a culture where starvation isn't the problem but obesity is you know we we've shifted the problem but overall it's a it's a better outcome that people have have more food than than less i think that's another thing you can look at as better i think that you know that there can probably be arguments against luxury but the ability to shape our environment to give people more opportunities, right? So I, I think that capitalism provides more opportunities, right? When when 10 people can open a business instead of just one, you have choices, right? So the amount of choices of what you do with your life has increased. And again, that's to me more equal opportunity. These are things that I think are have gotten better and are better for society. We don't have anarchy. We aren't killing each other in the streets for a loaf of bread. Not yet. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point. We can go to stores and and get books and read. We can go out with friends. I think overall it's safer. Safer meaning less crime. Uh, Crime is a bad thing and therefore less of it is a good thing. Um, These are some of the ways that I would define that we've gotten better. Do you have any to add specifically, or would you disagree with any of those? Crime is lower. The United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Freedom of, uh, you know, I translate a little bit of what you said, but freedom of information, the fact that we can go buy a book, freedom of association, the fact that we can go out with friends, non-anarchy as in like, you know, the rule of law having sway or having a hold. All of all of those things are good, but I think you're talking about symptoms. You're you're talking about results rather than causes. Uh, so what I was kind of more interested in is life expectancy goes up. That's a result of modern medicine, right? What caused the innovation in modern medicine? I would think it's opportunity of information. There's more information out there. More people can learn the ease at which you can learn something or you know have the opportunity to learn something uh where you can then go and do research right so in the book we haven't gotten to the scientific revolution uh which i think might be part three or four but i think a process by which you you take data you do experiments you create theories and that's 
something that has led to these positive symptoms. I also think it's beliefs, right? So when we're talking about the Constitution, um, I think the beliefs that everybody is is equal has the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By believing in this myth, you know, whether it's true or not, the United States is the most prosperous country in the world. So that uh, a little bit answers and, and gets to the, the root of my question there. The answer to what caused modern medicine is the scientific process. And the question of what caused the scientific process to be developed, the answer is the belief in medieval Europe that God created a world and that world would be knowable by us because he created us in his image. And because he created the world, we should be able to understand the world. So before the Christian mindset like that allowed for the scientific process to develop, it wasn't that there wasn't scientific um, or mathematical uh, discoveries or beliefs, but it, it wasn't to the level of God created everything and we have the ability to discover all the incredible parts of his creation. There was a little bit of the sun goes around the earth or the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and that's just the way things are and i i think that that change in mindset is what allowed for rapid change in the way that humans existed um and, and led to a lot of those positives the the scientific process being one of them also the belief that God did create all people is the reason we got to the idea of equality of, of all people being created equally that was created only because of that mindset. And without it, it, I don't think that it ever naturally comes up because you and I can meet each other and immediately see the 15,000 different ways that we're different and immediately assume, okay, I'm, you know, I may be inferior based on this couple of things, but I'm superior based on these things. So I'm superior and just make the assumption that automatically because of existence, there is a hierarchy. I fit in the hierarchy somewhere. I'm not equal to anybody. I'm either above or below. And I think it's very unnatural for us to come to the conclusion that everyone is equal, um, but that there is something fundamentally true there and when we allow that fundamental truth to come out, that is when humanity's at our best. Do, do you kind of follow that through line that I'm trying to push? I, I think so. I mean, you know, being a Catholic, I think you point to religion as uh, specifically Christianity as the reason for much of the success. And I think you made some good arguments for it. I don't necessarily have a an, another uh, hypothesis or theory for it, but I think it makes sense. All of what you just said. I mean, you can play the devil's advocate or you can tell me which parts of that is agreeable, <laughs> but either way, we're at like the longest episode ever now. So we can probably <laughs> find ourselves a way to wrap up and uh, appreciate everyone for listening. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, let us know what you think about the, uh, the first half of sapiens. We're still, you know, deciding if we're going to read the second half. Uh, I'm of the opinion that, you know, even though we may not agree, I think we we can learn uh, from disagreements or different perspectives. Um, and I think that, you know, even Yuval Noah Harari has something 
something positive that we can get out of it. And whether that's, you know, just a discussion of one that we've just had, whether we can discuss these ideas and, you know, what what is good for humanity? Uh, should we only live by biological pursuits? I would like to finish the book. Paul, I don't know if you <laughs> agree with that per se. We can, if if the plan is to finish the book, let's do it. Let's give the people what they ask. We can hopefully get a couple of comments. If, if you guys... Uh, don't want me to finish the book because you don't want to hear me complain about things for another episode. <laughs> let me know. But if there's interest in the what we think, what's the second half? It's the something else and then the scientific revolution. Is it uh, the unification of humankind and then the scientific revolution? So I'm yeah, I'm a little bit into the unification of humankind. Interesting. Such interest. I, I will give him that uh, the chapter titles that he uses throughout make me want to go, oh, well, well, what's he saying about that? So the unification of humankind is the arrow of history, the scent of money, imperial visions, the law of religion, and the secret of success. And then the largest part by far, almost half the book, is the scientific revolution, and that's the discovery of ignorance, the marriage of science and empire, oh man, the capitalist creed, the wheels of industry, a permanent revolution, and they live happily ever after and the end of homo sapiens and then the afterward the animal that became god and, and like yeah um, if if you want to if you want to finish this book i'll finish this book with you no problem man i would like to um anyways thank you all for listening we appreciate it leave a like comment share with anybody that you think might be interested in a conversation like this and uh have a wonderful day we'll see you next time